0: This is the Spring Research Project podcast, where we talk about community sponsorship of refugees. My name is Eliza Bateman, and I am Head of Research at the University of Ottawa Refugee Hub.
1: And I'm Tiomir Sabchev, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Refugee Hub. Welcome back to the Spring Research Project podcast. Most privately-sponsored refugees live in large cities like Toronto, Winnipeg, and Ottawa. However, many also settle in small towns and rural areas across Canada. Evidence on rural sponsorship is quite limited and generally confirms the nuanced findings from research on rural resettlement. On the one hand, rurality is linked to peaceful life, relatively low cost of living, and strong community ties. On the other hand, it also relates to important structural issues such as lack of job and study opportunities, limited access to social services, and inadequate public transport. In today's episode, we focus on both the challenges and the opportunities that small towns and rural areas present to sponsors and sponsored newcomers.
0: To discuss this topic, we're joined by Don Boddy. Don began his work with MANSO, the Manitoba Association of Newcomer Serving Organizations, in March 2017. Before that, he was the Settlement Services Coordinator at the Newcomers' Welcome Centre, Portage Learning and Literacy Centre in Portage La Prairie. Don has lived in rural Manitoba for more than 30 years and has worked and volunteered in the non-profit and volunteer sector for more than 20. Don has also been an active member of a local refugee sponsorship group that has been involved in bringing five refugee families to his local community. Don, welcome to our podcast.
2: Good morning. It's good to be here.
0: Don, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and your involvement in sponsorship, both in your work, but also personally.
2: Yeah, uh, as you said, I live in Portage La Prairie, which is one hour west of Winnipeg. Uh, you have to drive through Portage if you're heading west on the Trans Canada. My role is uh, to, my title is Manager of Small Centre Support, which means I support rural communities uh, throughout Manitoba. We literally go from the northern border to the south and east to west and supporting communities and organizations that do settlement and integration work. And so I'm quite honored to do this role. And I kind of float around at 10,000 feet. I don't do direct services. I just kind of see the big picture all the time and hear and be the collector of the stories. Along with my work, which was almost at the exact same time, I got involved in the local community sponsorship of Syrian families. And at the time uh, with the Syrian movement then, the Syrian response movement, we committed to bringing over two families and it was a, a really exciting time as we raised money and got excited and then frustrating time as we waited for the families to arrive and in the six years since then they've really become part of our community and part of my life and have changed my life for the better. Uh, I'll never forget the day they arrived and uh, how tired they were and how excited we were. I'll never forget the look on their face when they got to Winnipeg and we told them you're not home yet we have another hour and 15 minutes on the bus and helping them understand what it means uh, to live in Canada with all the struggles and all the joys of living here. Yeah, so that's been life-changing. And then the other great thing is because of my work is I get to hear what's going on throughout rural Manitoba. One of the best stories in a small town called Otona, which was about 5,000 people, uh, there's now one of their population is Syrian. That's amazing Um, as they have a really strong refugee sponsorship group there. And that was a small uh, little town that has changed completely because of refugee sponsorship. And so stories like that, I get to hear and uh, be part of and celebrate with folks. And also cry with folks because there's sometimes some really hard stories.
1: We would love to hear more personal stories from you and your friends about the settlement of newcomers in rural areas and small towns across Canada. But before that, I wanted to ask you a somehow broader question. Can you tell us what is the difference between urban areas and rural areas when it comes to refugee sponsorship? both for sponsors and for newcomers.
2: I'll start with the sponsors. For us, like it's often a great sense that we all know each other already because uh, of the size. My community is about 15,000 people, and there's a small group of us that are very involved in the volunteer sector, and it's the same group of people that do lots. Uh, the refugee sponsorship opened up to a few more new people. It's sometimes easier to recruit, I think, in small communities because a community movement that's going. That especially happened uh, with the Syrian response, this community was moved deeply, many members, from the, the Alan Curdy story and the boy on the beach, and that started it, and then a group of us got together, and then we started making connections. Also, you know where the money is, and we're all, Manitoba, sometimes you know who the families are at the shoulder top and ask, and overall, our community has been very generous. I think that... Uh, some of the issues sometimes is one of the things that shocked me both now as a professional and when I got started is the lack of training for sponsorship groups So like I got more training when I got a cat out of an adoption agency than I did when I, the first family came and I'm in the sector thankfully I have colleagues that do this stuff and been involved in this for a while so I think that that's one of the differences I think the, uh, the another difference is that it's sometimes easier to get integrated in the community here in Manitoba we, we pride ourselves on being friendly and we are I'm not sure how inviting we are, though, like we're friendly from a distance. But if you know some of the players and and people become it happened here, grandmas and grandpas, I'm very proud to be an uncle to some Syrian kids who call me Uncle Don and and one of the guys calls me his brother. And that's beautiful. And I feel like he's my brother. I think sometimes in small communities, those things can happen easier. Um, The refugees, one of the things that concerns me is that nobody knows where folks are landing except for the sponsorship groups. I think that someone should know and doing safety checks and just making sure that things are okay. We know in the first few months it's overwhelming, but if we don't know that folks are out there, how can we help support them and check in on them? And I cannot imagine going to another country where I'm really given, placed in the care of, another, of a group of people who might not know what they're doing. There might not necessarily be bad people, but they just don't know what they're doing. And so I think, uh, I, I know it's straight from the question, but I think it would be good if we had a sense of where folks are And sometimes, how do you get around knowing where folks are because you don't know all the communities? I think another thing to think about is, does the community have capacity? And so we said no in the beginning of our sponsorship because we're open to take any families from anywhere. And one of the ones that we were offered was a family that we could not find any language support at all, any interpretation support. And so anywhere in Manitoba, we can find that. And so we did not think we could support them well enough to bring that family in the end there was two syrian families that came originally one of the great things of course it's a wonderful manitoba story they came to a blizzard and got stuck in winnipeg for the first night and so the highways were closed and that's such a wonderful manitoba sponsorship story and then when we went both times when we went we filled up a bus uh, there's communities here they're a conservative religious community called hutterites and they're really into community and they often have buses and they've been involved in our sponsorships And so they brought their bus and 20 of us hopped on the bus and went and grabbed the families. And so that's really fun. I think the other great thing about small communities is you can do community celebrations and communities my size, like the mayor shows up and and welcomes families. And I don't think that goes on in the big cities as much. There are lots of issues around transportation, sometimes supports. One of the things is how do you get uh, mental health support for families? Uh, we're learning how to do this in, the, in Manitoba, where now we have a therapy program that's virtual and online. And that's be, one of the good things coming out of the pandemic. There was so much bad about the pandemic, but we really learned how to use technology better. And so now this program, it's based in Winnipeg, but I can go anywhere in rural Manitoba and it's changing lives.
1: It's very interesting to hear how you compensate for this lack of services and you find these innovative and creative ways to tackle the challenges that you are facing. You mentioned that in your case, you did not know the family that arrived and they didn't have any relatives or friends in the area. But in our conversations with other guest speakers, we have discussed that often refugees are sponsored by their relatives or friends in Canada. And I wanted to ask you, do you have any experience with such cases in rural areas and how they work in such context, the linked cases?
2: So for both of our families, uh, they were kind of the first families in Canada. There are other family members that have been sponsored places in Europe, but they were the first families uh were settled in other places in Europe, in Canada. And so our situation is kind of reverse in the sense that now we're continuing to sponsor family members to come, you know? And that's something I never thought about before the family came. And of course, like one of our families has three had three adult children still in Turkey. Of course, they have families. I have a family. If I come by myself, I'm going to want my parents and my adult kids and and cousins and to come. Um, and so we we brought over two of the kids for the one family and one brother through sponsorship. And we know that our our families have had uh, like friends in Alberta and stuff. So when they get some free time and they have enough money, they'll head there to visit their friends that they knew in Syria. And that makes perfect sense to me too. So now it's not that our families are connected to other family members in other parts of the country it's now that we're trying to raise money continually to bring over their families so they can be reunited and i don't know why i didn't think about that in the beginning because uh, we all have family and loved ones but yeah it's just been a really interesting and ongoing process for us
0: so firstly a quick note for our listeners um And just a a quick plug on some Refugee Hub material that we have. So we actually, a couple of years ago now, did a knowledge brief, we published a knowledge brief um, that was authored by uh, an academic with um, a lot of uh, background and expertise in refugee sponsorship in Canada, Dr. Stacey Hagan. You can find that on our our website. Um, It's not long, it's about 10 pages or so. And um, that was a collection of sort of what the research was telling us in 2021 about what sponsored refugees were um, experiencing when they were sponsored to rural communities and small towns. So with that introduction, Don, I'd love to know a little bit more. You, you said at the beginning that, you know, your, your job is to listen to stories, to tell stories, to, to go around communities and, and capture these different narratives. One of the things that we looked at in that knowledge brief was people telling refugees telling um, researchers that they had a difficult time building their own social groups when they landed in regional communities. But what you've just told us, it sounds like your families have built community. So I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how you did that and how they did that. How did those, those communities grow?
2: We can't take a lot of credit. The resilience and the strength of these people just overwhelms me. I tell my Syrian friends, if I was in Syria, I'd just be crying in the corner all the time. I wouldn't go see anybody and I wouldn't even know how to bank or, I mean, yeah. Um, We've always, especially in the beginning, we were way better at the beginning with making sure families were involved in community stuff. And so making sure they had connections and not only just with each other or with us, but trying to get them out to the community. So there was lots of skating and lots of fun things in that first year, tobogganing and and soccer in the first year, Um, and there still is some, but just not the same energy and capacity. Our families, uh, their resilience is unbelievable and they're they're wanting to connect. Unfortunately, one of the men uh, died suddenly and and it was horrible and beautiful as they were surrounded by the community, The family was surrounded by their community and 50 people showed up to sit with them. Yeah, it was really powerful. There still is lots of work to do uh, in getting them out there and, and helping them to become more involved in the community, giving them opportunities before the pandemic. Uh, my, I go for breakfast with four or five guys, and the Syrian man was coming and we didn't interpret for him. And We said, we just come and we complain about the weather and we complain about the government and, and what you understand, you can participate in. And then after the pandemic, as the pandemic got going, it all stopped and you had to come back. But trying to do those kind of community things is really important. We had them volunteering at a local second-hand store for a while to help build networks, things like that. Whatever opportunity, um, watching their kids play soccer and just sitting with the other parents was really good for the summers for the first first few years. Yeah, I don't know how they have the energy and the capacity. And, you know, the beautiful thing is uh, with WhatsApp and other uh, technology tools, they can talk to their families all night. And then, unfortunately, you have to live in Canada all day. So it's kind of like you're on call 24 hours a day connecting and talking with folks. And and I don't know how they manage that. So, yeah, those are some of the things we've done.
0: Something else that um, I'd love to know a little bit more about, um, maybe maybe the families that, that are in your area, but maybe also your broader work, do you see a lot of people wanting to leave rural communities and move into cities, maybe for, to get jobs or to be closer to family? Or do people tend to want to stay in these local communities?
2: So, of course, uh, one of the big issues is cultural and social isolation from your own community groups. And if you're the only family in a community, that's really hard and really exhausting. I would say, overall, 70 or 80 percent of the families in Manitoba that I know about have stayed in their community. But several have moved to Winnipeg. And and I see that when our people that I hang out with, they change when they get to speak Arabic and be around people from their culture. It must be exhausting to always be in another culture, right? And, and I see them come to life and be able to communicate better and stronger. And so I would get that, that the loneliness might be an issue sometimes. Um, but also, one of the strengths is that if you're supported really well, um, I want to be careful about that, but if you're supported really well, you might stay because you have a community around you. What I want to be careful about, families who leave, I'm not sure that it's always the fault of the sponsorship group. I'm not sure saying they're doing anything wrong. Just choices we all make. And I think it's great. If you make an informed choice to move, that's a good thing. But the families I know, it's easily 60 or 70% are staying in rural Manitoba. Um, yeah, Yeah, so it's more than half.
1: Well, Don, one of the things that we are interested in is that newcomers have the support of their sponsors for 12 months or sometimes a bit longer but after the end of the sponsorship, they are supposed to be self-sufficient as the government frames it. People need obviously to find work to build networks. And I wanted to ask you from this perspective, what kind of jobs do usually newcomers find in rural areas and small towns? Is it easy for them to find relevant opportunities?
2: Yeah, they find work, uh, Sounds dumb, but they find work where the work is. Uh, Once we can get them language, and you know, one of the things, our community is learning more and more about how we can do this. And once people understand basic English and what it means to be safe, that they're employable. You don't have to understand everything. None of us walk into a new job uh, knowing all the language and um, how it all works. But if we can communicate a bit and that one of the issues in like my rural community, our classes for English are six hours a week. You're never going to learn English at six hours a week enough to really uh, be able to work fully and, and communicate fully around all the issues. So work is a great way to learn English too. Work and volunteering is a great way to learn English and be out in the community. Yeah, and there's some, there's some really great uh, refugee sponsorship uh, or refugee uh, employment programs where you get six weeks of English and six weeks of working in a field and you're paid for it. That is going on in Manitoba, and so that helps people. There was a great display of, uh, there was carpentry a couple years ago, and you should have seen the projects all these people built learning English at the same time. It was overwhelmingly beautiful and meaningful. And now some of them are working in the field because of that English for work kind of situation. We always want to try and also find people meaningful employment. Not, it doesn't have to be their dream job, but let's start people on a career path that maybe they want to be. And these people have really good lives are, are one Family. He was a hydraulic engineer um, and fixed mechanics. Now he has to learn lots of English here, but we're working still to try and get him back into that field. We have another recently arrived uh, family who is, he cut hair in Syria, so we're connecting him to a barber. And so maybe the barber will mentor him here in Canada, because that's what he wants to do. Uh, You know, anybody can get a job. I used to do employment work. It's not that hard to help people find jobs, but helping them start a career path that they find meaningful and that they can see an end in, outstanding and of course like the kids blow me away and we now have two girls who are in university five years ago they didn't speak english both these girls won scholarships in high school both these women now and so they're on a really good career path one wants to go do dentistry stuff and one's going into business how they keep going and pushing and doing all this in the second language just blows me away and they're doing well in university better than i did in my first year let me tell you um yeah so uh, yeah, so we just keep trying to we're, we're what they want. We're trying to find goals for them. Telling them that you have to rebuild your career here. It's sad. And sometimes all of us have to do that.
0: Don, I'd love to follow up. You mentioned um, earlier about this this mental health support that's now sort of traveling around Manitoba. And I think that sounds so exciting. Um, I know that mental health for recently arrived refugees is a huge issue. And there's been a lot published on that. And I'd love to know more about that. How does it work? How is it funded?
2: So I think it's it's funded mostly from the province of Manitoba um, and it's an online time with a therapy uh, with a therapist and it's very much a therapy session before we thought this could never be effective the pandemic has taught us it can be and our question before was how do you get the therapist in the room in rural communities you know it's very trained the other great thing about this program it's often counseling in first language most of us cannot articulate our heart and our thoughts how the heck do we do this in a second language I would have no idea. to do that and so yeah it's it's winnipeg based but they connect virtually just like you would with any other therapist it's regularly scheduled it's about an hour a session i know it's changing people's lives um and making and giving people new tools and helping them with their resilience to understand themselves and find strengths that they didn't know they had
0: it sounds fantastic and i'm interested also because we've we did a lot of work during the pandemic speaking to sponsors trying to Work out what was working for them now that they couldn't be in person with the newcomers they were supporting, and we were blown away by some of the innovative things that people were doing. Um, you know, having online watch parties and doing sort of like lawn parties with their families and all sorts of things. So I just I'd love to know. You mentioned that there were some innovations that you you put in place for the pandemic, and also that others did. And I yeah, I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Um,
2: one of the sad and great stories is that I became a grandpa uh, during the pandemic. Uh, uh, I was through marriage on my wife's side, but my daughter had a kid. And so my searing friends taught me how to be a virtual grandpa and how to use technology and how to sit in front of the phone and just watch the baby. And sometimes the mom and dad would be there and we would just talk and play. I'll never forget when my granddaughter kind of met me for the first time. I was actually in my work office in Winnipeg. And you could could see that she knew you, but she was thinking, you live inside this computer box. What are you doing that big and walking around? That doesn't make sense. So I still remember that. Um, Yeah, using a lot more cell phone and virtual communication, even here in town, obviously for all of us, the isolation and the loneliness was overwhelming. So that just multiplied for, for the refugee people who, yeah. I mean, we still snuck over there sometimes uh, just to say hi and make sure they were doing okay. And at different times, many, many people went through having COVID and so that it, it really shut down. So using video technology and when it comes to innovation, in most areas, I'm, a, I'm an early adapter of new thoughts. In technology, I am a dinosaur. So the the pandemic uh, taught me how to use the stuff really well and check in with people. Also, we haven't seen somebody for a while, even on the phone between friends connecting virtually is a good way to go so you can kind of see their expressions and check in more than just voice uh things like that um it also helped us to connect refugees better to each other they learned those skills and we also said now you can talk to your friend there this way because we've learned how to do this and things like that so
1: yeah don we have many sponsors listening to our podcast from across canada and i'm sure that some of them actually live in small towns in rural areas and perhaps some of them have considered sponsoring refugees but they may think that it's something very difficult and even overwhelming, given also the challenges that you mentioned. So I wanted to ask you to give some advice to those who listen us from rural Canada and perhaps provide some suggestions how they can get involved in refugee sponsorship and how they can overcome these challenges.
2: Well, I want to affirm that it is overwhelming and very difficult, and it's also a a ton of fun and and life-changing. So first of all, remember that we're dealing with adults most times, even young adults, that we don't own people. People are allowed to make their decisions, even if we don't agree with them. They're their decisions to make. We have to help guide them, but we don't own people. And if we're bringing someone over, let people make bad decisions. That's okay, not do damage, but it's okay to make mistakes. We've all done it. To also see that these are joining our community. These are not people that we're just there to serve and make better, they're also helping us to become better people and teaching us things. So to be open to learning from them, keep staying, keep talking about the money to the community. Like now our message is we're reuniting grandparents to their grandkids. Who doesn't want to sponsor that? Uh, uh, So we have to get families together. Who doesn't want to have families together? So find a message to help raise the money and just keep going and you'll get there. Um, It's a powerful story. It's uh, changed my life. Yeah, we've helped them. They've helped expand my world a whole bunch. They've helped me appreciate resilience so much more than I did. Their ability to laugh at themselves and some of the silly stories, and especially in the beginning, things like, there's lots of tools out there like Google Translate to help in the beginning. Uh, When you're using Google Translate, speak in very short sentences and very concrete things because they get really messy really fast. we have some wonderfully fun stories of conversations that went sideways. Also, reach out to your communities around you and try and find support and see who else is doing this and learn from others. And every province in Manitoba has an umbrella organization like Manso um, that you can reach out to, and almost every community has a settlement agency somewhere close to them. And so use those tools. Like there's a checky box thing in refugee sponsorship. Have you uh, connected with your local settlement office? Connect with them, and don't think that you can do the forms. If a if somebody had a bad knee, you would not be their doctor. So try and seek help when you're doing immigration stuff and doing the important document stuff. That's what these people do. You don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to be experts on that stuff. So look for the resources around you. Also, in many provinces of Manitoba, there's something called the Refugee Training Sponsorship Program, and there's staff attached to that. Reach out to those resources and learn from them. Reach out to other sponsorship groups. Often the SAW will know about the sponsorship groups, and they don't have to disclose uh, privacy stuff, but just reach out for support and ask, what did you do well and what did you do wrong? And also reach out and see if there's other cultural people from the same culture in communities around you, so maybe they can connect. So a big thing is reaching out, being kind to yourself and always learning. I think that's the big advice.
1: This is a great advice for prospective sponsors. And I also wanted to ask you for some advice for policymakers. The aim of our research is to help policymakers in Canada and abroad to design and improve sponsorship programs. So from your experience and with your rural perspective, let's say, what are the suggestions that you would like to share?
2: Uh, number one, and there's a bit of a movement going on right in Canada, private sponsorship does not replace government sponsorship. It's a both and. And we want government sponsorship numbers to be high, and we want private sponsorship numbers to be high. So don't push the burden of, of refugee sponsorship on the communities. And in government sponsorship we're paying for it too, through our tax dollars. So let us pay that way. Um, also... Um, The work that SAWS do are incredible. And the Saw that we work with is unbelievably supportive. This is a volunteer woman working with many sponsorship groups. If there could be more support for for SAWS to be able to support their constituency groups and and honor their time, uh, the application forms are unbelievable. And they see us through from beginning to end. And this is all volunteer. She's, She's working with many groups. She just blows me away. If there could be some support for them. And now with the auditing of sponsorship, which needs to happen, it's even more responsibility on on sponsorship groups and SAWS to make sure that things are done well. And that's becoming overwhelming for some folks and they're getting other sponsorship. So if you're gonna put all these expectations on sponsor, on SAWS and sponsorship groups, maybe providing them some support so they can actually do it well and, and not relying on volunteers. The Refugee Training Sponsorship Program in Manitoba could use way more staff, so fund that. And, and that's because many supports of sponsorship can be done well. I think also, uh, the other one is, I've been wondering about for a while, is to fast track family members. I know that's not fair to people not here in Canada, but um, it might not have connections. But it's a th- two or three year process for each family member. And if there's a way that we could, beyond a one year window, that we could fast track uh, some family members or married family members to bring them, that would help families mental health and feel connected tons. But every time you're starting over, it's a two or three year process. You know, I used to always laugh and say when I did settlement, welcome to Canada, we're slow. You want faster services, pay more taxes. I would say that to the newcomers. But we can really support the refugee groups to bring over their family members and loved ones, which will help them. There's been so much loss in their life. I don't know why we can't fast track them and say, OK, let's try and get them over here a little bit quicker. Also, with the Bevoir program, is there a way that, we could, that could be expanded to also include and name people who you want to bring? because that sponsorship would have happen faster and the government just has to throw in some cash and the sponsorship group will do the support to a big part along with the settlement agency. So I think opening up more funding, of course, whenever you talk to a policy, that's what you want all the time. But uh, fast-tracking family members and using the B4 program and allowing to name families um, and more training for folks who are getting into sponsorship and support would be my big recommendations. And I'll just say it again because it's really important. Do not allow private sponsorship to replace government sponsorship. It's both ends. Keep numbers high at both sides.
1: Don, you mentioned several times the importance of keeping families together, and I believe you say this based on your personal experience. Can you explain to us what is the effect of this family reunification in the sponsorships that you have facilitated?
2: Why are you trying to make me cry? Um, (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine being uh, in a new country Without my support to my loved ones, I can't imagine. My kid went to Europe for a year to study, but she was there as an international student, and I I always had contact with her. What do you do when you don't have that kind of contact and there's not a date for them to come? Um, How does a mom go on if she doesn't know how her kids are doing? You know, When we brought over the son, the adult son, there was a beautiful scene at the airport where where the son got down and kissed his mom's feet, and the mom held him just at the airport. It was just... I live five hours away from my mom once and I hated it. So now I live an hour away. I moved back from my parents. <laughs> and I can't imagine without being the... Co- and now it's multiplied, like I said, because you can talk on WhatsApp all night to your kids. But now you also have to live this life in Canada for the next morning. So it just makes sense. And also not only family members, of course they're most important, but loved ones and natural supports are everywhere. And so if my best friend, if I can bring him, I want to, because that'll help me be more supported and more community people so yeah like I said the now you can stay in contact with the family like uh, just recently the horrible earthquake in Syria and Turkey and other countries that if one of the daughters is still there and that affected her and so the mom and dad have to deal with this and then live their lives in Canada and so of course if we're all together we just know that. that doesn't mean living beside each other all the time I mean we have families an hour apart now but at least they're here in Canada and we know that they're safe so that just removes a burden that doesn't need to be there, it allows people to live more freely and have more capacity.
0: That's a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. As an immigrant too, and I live a long way away from my family, I can only imagine what what people go through when their family are left in war-torn countries or very difficult circumstances in countries of first asylum. So thank you for sharing that.
2: Well, thank you for your interest.
1: Thank you for your contribution to our podcast, Don, and we wish you all the best for your future sponsorships in Rural Manitoba.